So welcome back to Speakeasy Security, the podcast from ESET. I'm Ransom Burkett. And I'm Tony Anscombe. And we have a great podcast lined up for you today. Now, not only am I excited about the topic, but full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of our guest. Today, we're going to be talking about cybercrime, online fraud, and law enforcement. Now, there are so many staggering statistics to report about the sheer volume of cybercrime that we had to go to the one person who knows all too well how cybercrime is growing in the U.S., and joining us today to discuss this is the founder of the Cybercrime Network and FraudSupport.org, Kristen Judge. Hi, Kristen, and thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ransom and Tony. And I have to say, I'm also a fan of Ransom's. I'm sure we'll be a fan of Tony's very soon, so I get to know him, yeah. and a fan of ESET. So thanks for having me. Um, it's really an important topic, and having these discussions hopefully will help your listeners. Great. Yeah, we're, we're really glad to have you here. And again, Tony and I were thinking about this for a while and planning this one. So we're just we're, we're ready to jump right in. And as you've said, you know, we've worked together on a few initiatives in the past. I mean, we bump into each other at RSA or any conference, whether it's D.C. or Vegas or San Francisco. And I feel as though I know some but not all of the cyber related initiatives that you're working on. Um, but the one that comes to the top of the mind right now is, of course, the Cyber Crime Support Network. So maybe you could explain what is the CSN, or I call it CSN, you may call it something else, but uh, how, how, how did you start that organization and maybe give us a little bit of a background? Sure. We call it CSN too. It's much easier for people to remember. And I was a former elected official. And when I was working with CISA, which was NPPD at DHS and the former White House, we were going around the country explaining to consumers and small businesses and elected officials about cybercrime and cybersecurity. And this started back in 2009. Uh, I think that's about when we met too. And I realized in talking to many of the experts in the field that if someone was a victim, they didn't know where to go to get help. I actually had a constituent of mine call me at eight o'clock on a Friday night asking me who he should call because his sister was getting into trouble with someone harassing her on Facebook. And I didn't really know where someone should go. So Working with federal, state, and local law enforcement and consumer protection agencies over the years, I called together some friends and said, what can we do to make sure victims know where to go to get the help they need? And that's what started it. Oh, wow. Wow. That's that's great. And as you said, you found a need and someone had reported it. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear more. Uh, Tony, what do you think about this? Well, so I think it's really interesting. So Kristen, as you know, um, I speak at lots of conferences and events. In fact, that's where we met recently. And one of the things I think my takeaway is people still are not fully aware of where all the resources are. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges because it's one of those topics that unless you're the victim, yeah, you, you've got no interest in the subject. Yeah. But it's only like you need to get the, the interest in the subject before somebody becomes a victim so that when it does happen, they can immediately find the resources. It's no good, is it, after becoming a victim to find the resource two weeks later. And I think that's one of the you know, biggest challenges. So yeah, what is happening to actually make people aware of where to get help if something does happen? Well, unfortunately, and fortunately, at the same time, one in four Americans now, according to Gallup, are a victim of cybercrime every year. Some of the research we did, we found one in three adults is a victim of cybercrime every year. So there aren't going to be very many people left that aren't paying attention. I think this is one of the benefits, you know, we've all been talking about cybersecurity for 10 plus years and no one listened to us in the beginning, I think we don't really have to convince people they need to pay attention anymore. But getting resources all in one place is why CSN exists. 
we built fraudsupport.org and that's fraudsupport.org where a victim, a small business or consumer, they can go there and find out what are the first steps that I should take? How do I report this cybercrime? How do I recover from it? What resources are available to me? And that doesn't always mean getting your money back because that may not happen. And then how do I reinforce my security after I've been a victim? Because as we know, and in, as you know, in working in um, security education and helping people, you know, when someone's had a breach, guess what? It's the best time to teach. They want to put ESET on their system because like, okay, now I know why this is important. And so we want to capture them when they're really paying attention to make sure they increase their security at that time. Absolutely. Now, I was going to say, let me give you give you a number here because uh, recently Ransom and I were talking about the numbers of people in data breaches, and it's really hard to actually look globally how many people are in data breaches. I spoke about it somewhere, and I, I put together a very crude calculation. It's kind of fictitious, but it's not fictitious. So let me carry on. It's under the California Privacy Act, the Consumer Privacy Act, the so CCPA. We were looking at this to do with Blackboard and some of the other stuff recently, which is actually why I started looking at how many, how what the volume is of of data breaches. What's really nice about CCPA is that you breach notifications have to be lodged with the uh, state attorney general, so you have to you can see how many notifications are sent out. So anyway, I looked for the 30 days of June of breaches with over 500 California residents, and there were 38 notifications listed. Now, if you take it, then if you look at the population of California and you wind that up, that means there'd be 7,500 breaches per month globally, just taking the number of breaches in California and kind of calculating it up. So I know it's a flawed statistic, Kristin, but... Right. And then if you look at Statista, uh, between 2005 and 2019, the average US data breach was 155,000 records per breach. Now, if you times that by 7,500 breaches per month, you end up with 14 billion breached records over a year, which actually means every resident of the world is breached twice every year. So it's really interesting. Whenever you talk about this subject at a conference, one of the things I always do is turn and say, if you've been in a breach, could you put your hand up? And uh, you get maybe a quarter of the people in the room will put their hand up and say, yeah, I've been in, involved in a data breach. Uh, and realistically, everybody in the room has. Yeah, They just don't know. Uh, and that's kind of one of the things that that's a little bit frightening. So with so many data breaches affecting victims, how is CSN and fraud support different from a federal agency? So, for example, the FBI's uh, cybercrime unit. So, you know, we partner with Internet Crime Complaint Center um, at the FBI, and what they do is a really good job of categorizing and collecting reports from the public. Uh, But then when victims do report, they sometimes say, okay, when are they going to call me back? Well, unfortunately, even though it says in the disclaimers, they can't call everybody back. Um, it's just too high of a volume. And I've heard that their volume has gone up fourfold during COVID. So last year, 20, 2019, they had 450,000 reports to IC3. And I've done math like you've done, Tony. I'll share some <laughs> of my math now. So if they had 450,000 reports in 2019... And those people lost, I think it was $3.7 billion. 
And then we extrapolate that if 50 million people are victims every year, that's 340 billion with a B dollars lost by American citizens every year. That's a financial crisis. It, it so, certainly is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Huge numbers. Not only the economic impact, but as you were saying, the victims that are being targeted are just, it doesn't seem to be going. In fact, it's growing. It sounds like it's, it's growing, right? The magnitude and the sheer volume of breaches and the, the impact. Absolutely. And you know, in some ways I feel like with the Equifax breach, we're 140 million Americans. So that's about how many adults there are. So I think we need to start over and maybe not even use social security numbers anymore. Because I don't know how much value there is to them. They're all out there anyway. <laughs> well, what's, what's interesting about this is is I don't think we um, or people normally, you know, people outside of our industry understand that actually this is a business. Cybercrime is a business, and I, I don't think they understand that it's not some guy in a hoodie that's trying to scam you. That's that's in the shady car down the road. This is actually a business. Um, you know, people are making a huge amount of money, as you, as you just stated. Yeah. And we try really hard to work with federal, state and local law enforcement. We have resources listed on fraudsupport.org that help people figure out where should I go? Who is available to help? And we're really excited to be launching a searchable database and a recovery directory so that when people go to fraud support sometime in October, thanks to our funding from CISA, They'll be able to say, I live in Arizona or I live in Michigan. What's available for me here as a consumer? So, for example, in Michigan, we have the elder fraud um, support and they will help people who've been a victim of fraud and they'll get them law um, legal help. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there are resources out there, but it's just hard for someone to just put in. I've been hacked. Where do I go? Yeah. Yeah. too much. That, 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 I mean, I'm glad that you mentioned that because when, when we were talking earlier and I was kind of sharing the scenario with, you know, my family and I kind of said, well, great, what would you guys do? And all of them kind of threw up their hands. I don't know what I would do. So to, to humor me for a minute. Walk me through this scenario. So if I receive a message on my phone that says that, you know what, it's now locked. You've been targeted with ransomware. The only way to retrieve the data is to pay the ransom. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll unlock your phone or we'll unlock your data. What support would I receive if I were to contact fraudsupport.org or CSN? How, how would that work? Well, I would go to fraudsupport.org and I would say either I'm an individual or I'm a small business. And then it'll give you nine, anywhere from six to nine categories to choose from. And one of them is ransomware. And when you click on ransomware, it'll say, okay, here's the definition of ransomware. Just to make sure people know that they're clicking on the right one. Here's the first five steps you should take. And then here's where you need to report it. And then here's the resources that the FBI has created, the Federal Trade Commission has created. Um, and then your phone company, since it's on a phone, yeah. you can go to issues with my devices. And we list the helplines for different types of uh, phone you know, providers and ISP providers. So we've taken all the data and put it in one place so you don't have to go searching around for where to go. Wow. Wow. That's a true network. As you said, it's the network of resources. I love that. And yeah. and I think, I hope we can highlight this to all the listeners there because again, most people would go, eh, I don't know what to do <laughs> I'll, or I'll just pay even worse, right? I'll just pay it and, and hope to get it back. And that's probably the thing that you don't want them to do, right? Well, that's a, that's right. a great question. question. Would you ever recommend somebody does pay the ransom? So I've done a lot of work with small businesses in education and awareness. And this is one of the big questions we always try and tackle. And of course, the FBI discourages people from paying. I do too. But when you have a company that did not do 
the correct backup or their backup gets infected. Let's say it's a small dental office or a small you know, chiropractor office and all of their patient and client data is now being held for ransom and they do not have a viable backup. You know, I'm not going to be judging them if they do decide to pay that. Uh, but the problem is, number one, if you do pay, you still may not get your data back. Number two, if you pay, they may put you on a list that, that exists on the dark web that says, here's someone who's going to pay, go ahead and try them again. You sort of get on that list of uh, potential repeat victims. Mm. Well, you're also funding them to go and attack somebody else because you're giving them resources. But I don't know whether you saw that the, the, I mentioned the Blackboard hack uh, or breach earlier on. I think this was really interesting because Blackboard One is it's difficult to understand how many people were affected because the notifications came from all the individual customers they have. So there's there's been no big number of several hundred million or anything like that. And it's truly global. They actually managed to thwart the ransomware attack. So they got rid of it through law enforcement and their own security team, which is really good. So that's what we like to hear. But the cyber criminal then flipped this and came back and turned and said, yeah, but I've got a copy of your data because I took it before I tried to encrypt it. And if you want me to delete it, you're going to have to pay. That's right. And they did. Once, we don't, once, we don't, yeah, once you start paying, they're just going to assume you're going to keep paying. But they didn't even encrypt it. This is this yeah. is like a new level. How do you know they deleted it? Yeah. You don't. You don't. But what are they going to do if you don't pay them? Then they're going to re-encrypt your data? I mean, you know, you're playing with criminals. So yeah. Yeah. Well, then they've got, you got to remember. They'd already copied the data off site. So they, it had already been exfiltrated from their network, which is really interesting. So to thwart the attack and then pay is is a whole new level whole new level. I agree with you. And this is the problem is that because people aren't doing good cyber hygiene, like appropriate backups and test your backups, do a fire drill to make sure your backup works on a Saturday or Sunday. The criminals have us. And I've been starting to say, I have this idea in my head that cybercrime won't stop until it's not profitable. So so we need people to make it the, the consumers and the businesses need to make cybercrime not profitable by putting things in place, making security a priority and having that education and awareness and the tools in place so this doesn't happen. But until everybody is locked down and has what they need in place, the criminals make money. It's not going away. So I have to ask one question on that um, is what about um cryptocurrencies because actually the payment of choice is cryptocurrencies if only we if it was regulated and you knew who you were paying then surely the money the money would actually come out of this industry i don't think that would be everything because there's always been wire transfer fraud and you know you set up an account in jamaica and then it's gone 10 minutes later after you get the money in it i don't think it would take care of it altogether it would certainly slow them down and give us a better chance of seeing some kind of uh, pathway. It's not going to be the only, you know, the the 100% answer, but certainly it could help. I agree with you. Yeah, Ranson has heard me rant about <laughs> cryptocurrencies for a while yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, the anonymization of um, being able to transfer large sums of money just irks you, Tony. I know it does. <laughs> I know it does. Well, so you brought up cyber hygiene. And as you said, it's incumbent upon everyone, right? I think from the businesses down to the individuals that are working there, 
But nine, I would tell you probably nine out of 10 people that I talk to outside of my cyber uh, kind of circle here, nine out of 10 people say, you know what? I don't have anything important to a cyber criminal. So if they get my data, eh, they get my data. I'll just sign up for credit monitoring or something like that. I mean, I think that's pretty dangerous thinking in and of itself. But does the average consumer have something of value? As you said, if you stop the value or the stop the ability for them to make this profitable, then of course you will probably stop them in their tracks because there's no, there's no reward at the end of it. Um, but is it true? Does the average consumer have nothing of value to cyber criminals or, or is there something? Well, do they own, you know, HIPAA data and all this, you know, a data trove? No, but do they have accounts? What I would push back on someone who said that to me is, do you have an email? Do you have a bank account? Yeah. If you have those two things, you have data that's important to someone, but it's not that you hold the data. So I think that's the misconception. They feel like, well, I'm not storing that data. Yes, I have access to my bank account, but that's not my data. That's my bank that has it. So you have to make that link for them so they know that anytime you access one of your accounts, especially your email, you have a treasure trove in there that if the bad guys can get in there, they can get into all your other accounts. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's definitely how I should frame that because you'd be shocked at how many people just say, oh, they, you know, I don't have anything of value. Oh, I, but I hear it too. You probably yeah, do, yeah. Oh wow. Well, how about your it. family photos? You know, are your family photos important to you? What if those were gone? I completely so, agree. Yeah. Well, there's, there's email, and we've we've also seen that issue of SIM swapping, where cyber criminals manage to take control of the phone. So if they've got your email and they've got your phone, then they can reset pretty much any password or any account out there which is the a, a big problem but anyway right. it's, it, it's that time in our podcast where we need to talk about what we're drinking this week don't we so christine this is kind of a tradition on speakeasy we always have a beer or something to drink so this week i actually i've broken uh, protocol here <laughs> i'm having a glass of wine a, a butter chardonnay a butter Ooh. chardonnay tony <laughs> butter chardonnay. not just a chardonnay but butter chardonnay with the accent yeah. just sounds amazing right now <laughs> i think that's one of those drinks that tony's gonna sip with his pinky up yeah is that one of those uh... yeah yeah <laughs> that's good butter chardonnay. so kristen what are you sipping on what do you have there you know, I am a sangria person up until about October. When October hits, it's a little bit too cold. So I drink all of my sangria before the end of October. So I've got about six days left. <laughs> that's, my, that's my official summer summer drink. I like that. You close out the summer season with, you know, you're, you got to get rid of the sangria. I love it. That's right. I Someone love has to, right? Yeah, someone's got it. Well, send some this way if you can. <laughs> no, uh, I'm Tony, I went back to my old staple. I, I know you hate to hear it, but Lagunitas has a great beer called Little Something Something. It's a great IPA. As they call it, a smooth and silky IPA I love. So I'm going to raise a glass of something something to both of you and do a cheers. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers to you. Yeah, cheers. Now, Kristen, just for disclosure, I actually believe that Ranson has some sort of sponsorship deal with Lagunitas. So I think they deliver on a on a Tuesday morning to him. That, that, that would, would be nice. That would be really nice. I will ping the guys in Petaluma, California and say, hey, where's my supply? But um, yeah, yeah, great beer. It goes down easy. If you guys get a chance, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely make sure that you guys have some next time we're able to get, get together in person. Sounds good. All right. So tell me, what's next? What are we doing? So if somebody was a victim, Christine, where should they go? That's a great question. So we have some states where we have worked with United Way 211 partners. So if someone lives in Rhode Island, Mississippi, North Carolina, 
New Jersey, Central Florida, or West Michigan, about 20 counties, they can actually call 211 right now. 211 is an existing infrastructure run by mainly United Way services, and they provide human resource referrals. Um, so, or human service refer- referrals, excuse me. And what if someone needs help with food or housing, uh, mental health issues, which you can imagine many times cybercrime victims need help with those things. Uh, if they've given away all their money to a romance scammer, they may not be able to pay their rent. So we partnered with 2-on-1 so that they could triage the victims, get them through fraud support, maybe help them fill out the IC3 form, but then also take care of their human services needs. But if you're not in a state that's included there, fraud support is ready to go. If you are in one of those states and you didn't remember what I just said and you go to fraud support, the two-on-one will pop up anyway. So you'll know that it's available in your state. So you don't have to even think about it ahead of time. We also had a great partnership with Google. We're so thankful for them supporting us for many years now. And we built scamspotter.org in May. And this is really a site that's geared towards seniors who may not be sure if they're being scammed. So we just talk about three golden rules. Uh, Number one, slow down because most scams aren't urgent. I need you to fill out this form or click this link right now. Something's important. Uh, And then spot check. If you get an email from your bank that says, tell me all of your passwords, go to your bank and ask them if they really sent that. And then also, Gift cards are never payments for anything. They are supposed to be gifts. So do not send someone gift cards you've never met. So that's great. That's great advice. Anything you'd like to add, Ransom? Well, I've never paid anyone with a gift card outside of something at like a white buffalo exchange. So I'll make sure to put that out there for all of my colleagues here because that's a really good point. I've seen that I've seen that scam plenty of times, Chris, and so that's really good to hear. Um, and also, the thing that you just mentioned with regards to two one one, and I'll I'll highlight that in our section notes because I don't think most people are are aware of that. And I'll, of course, as you mentioned, your site will show or it'll indicate if that's available to you. So I'd love to highlight that as a uh, as a resource for people that are in those counties and regions. That, that do offer that support. Um, one of the things I did want to add is, have you seen anything that has uh, maybe piqued your interest, either in terms of the growth of certain types of scams or a new type of scam that you're going, hey, look, you might want to pay attention. For example, at ESET, we noticed, uh, as they said, uh, that the daggers were out this year with COVID-related scams uh, and, and targeting a variety of folks, not just seniors, but pretty much everyone. Um, were, are there any ones that you have seen that are coming into your network that um, that we should there be aware are, of? There are. You know, romance scam victims are uh, hold a special place in my heart. The majority of the people coming to our site, fraudsupport.org, every month, the number one thing they're searching for is help with a romance scam. And they spend about eight minutes on that page. And we can see how they search for is this person really a scam? They want to do the reverse lookup of the picture. And so, you know, eight minutes on any one web page for anybody who does that is is a lot of time. So it just really hurts my my heart to think of all the people looking for help there. And then we're doing a peer support group for seniors who've been victims of romance scams. We are taking a program that was made in LA County uh, by an FBI agent, Debbie Deem, where she brought together seniors who'd been victim of romance scams. And once a week, they get on a phone call together and support each other and learn about how to break away from that person. And she told us that uh, many times the people who came to that peer support group 
were suicidal when they joined. Because if you're in your 70s and you've just given someone your entire life savings, how are you going to go for a new job? How are you going to you know, yeah. face your kids and let them know what happened? How are you going to you know, pay your rent? So it's really, that to me is where we want to focus a lot of our time. And then also helping military and veterans, uh, military community, because we know that they are targeted by scammers and shame on them. Sorry, I was muted there. Uh, that, that is pretty low, as you said, for people that are helping and, and protecting our country to, to target them. is just a different level of, of mm, human. Let's just put it that way. Um, let's see. Well, Chris, anything else you want to add? I think we've covered a lot with fraud support and the CSN network and, of course, this new thing. Um, I heard you're doing some things on LinkedIn Live. Do you want to tell us about what's your... Uh, What's your new project I there? Am. That's been so exciting. I am a LinkedIn instructor for LinkedIn Learning. So I created a course. I'm a bit of a NIST cybersecurity framework geek. Created yes. a course, mm -hmm. uh, Small Business Cybersecurity Made Simple on LinkedIn Learning. And because of that, they were able to sort of fast track me to be able to have a LinkedIn Live account, which is like, almost like my own TV channel. It's really fun. So I go in to StreamYard and then I go to my LinkedIn Live and I'm live and I can have guests on. And so I'm doing Cyber Tip Tuesdays at 3.05 Eastern on every Tuesday. And then I'm starting to book up my Cyber Threat Thursdays where I have a guest come on and uh, we talk for about a half an hour about what they're seeing. I had uh, No Before on and AT&T and we're getting ready to have Comcast and Microsoft and Google and uh, really exciting to, to do this. It's just like this kind of podcast where we just talk, we have a great conversation, but I can do it live and then it uh, stays, you know, people can go back and look at it later, but it's really fun. So how would somebody find that? If you go to my LinkedIn uh, page, link, uh, Kristen Judge, and then you click on my activity, you'll see my LinkedIn lives that have been posted. We also have a YouTube page that we're moving them all over to in addition to some really great one-minute videos that you can share with people in your network, we'd love to have you subscribe to the Cybercrime Support yes. Network YouTube page, please. Well, you can certainly count on ESAT to do that because that's great. And these resources, as you mentioned, the shorter, the more concise and probably specific, you probably get more adoption and people to understand. So this makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Tony, what else can we say here? Well, just one thing of, of thank you, Christine, because uh, I've got a presentation coming up soon to seniors about safe dating. Yeah. And I know I'm going to take away some of the information we've talked about today and some of the great work that you guys are doing and include it in that presentation. So thank you for I'm joining so us. I'm so glad you're doing that. Just let them know about Scam Spotter. If they ever just want to say, is this really, this person really real? And just never send money to a stranger. Yes. Sage advice. I mean, you, you couldn't have said it better. And as Tony said, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We're excited to have you. We're talking about this for a while now. And I'm excited to share all the resources that you'd mentioned on our site uh, when you go to ESET's newsroom, but also we'll be promoting this across social. Uh, we'll put some notes and some links that you had uh, mentioned earlier, Cybercrime Support Network, Fraud Support, and of course, even Scam Spotter, as well as those resources you mentioned that are available in specific counties. And until then, Kristen, we want to thank you so much for joining the podcast from ESET. And we hope you have one heck of a Thank week. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the time, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs>